Hi, this is Natalie, and I'm back to tell you part three of my story. Um, if you're listening, thank you so much, and I'm sending you so much love, and I hope that my words resonate, even if our stories are different. I hope you feel heard. I hope you feel represented and seen and cared about, and I hope you feel how much I, I just care so deeply and how much I'm doing this for all of us, for myself, because I need to, but for all of us, and I'm doing it for you, for each and every one of you. I'm telling my story in the hopes that it makes things just that little bit better. There's just a little bit more awareness, a little bit more truth out there, because our stories have been told in the most convoluted, twisted, slanderous, cruel, untrue ways, and we have to write that. We have to write the truth, literally and figuratively. And so that's what I've done. I've written it and then I go completely off script <laughs> regularly, like most writers probably would. And, um, and I'm just telling you my story and my time and my way. And I, I hope, I hope it's helping. And, um, I'm sending you so much love and so much gratitude. Thank you for being on this journey with me. Thank you. And, um, you're helping me. This is helping me so much. It's painful, but it's deeply cathartic. So to, to recap where we left off, I had been summarily kicked out of hospital, even though um, my doctors that were caring for me wanted me to have a spinal tap, which we waited weeks for. They wanted me to get an MRI, which they were really one of the young med, med stu student doctors um, was just shocked that they didn't want to do an MRI. And the family meeting was canceled and I was sent home. And this was all done after the day after I complained about how I was treated by two neurologists, uh, a neurologist and a neurology student. Um, so I don't think it was a coincidence, but um, it was very, very painful. And um, it was disheartening and it left us feeling all alone again as we have felt so many times in this journey and as, as almost every ME patient can say they felt, every ME patient, that we've just felt so alone, so alone. Who's going to help us? Who can help us? Does anyone want to help us? That's how it feels. So thankfully, I finally got a little help. I got a lovely new doctor who replaced my doctor on sabbatical. She wasn't going to be with me permanently, unfortunately, but we had an instant connection. We instantly got along. She was open-minded and ready to learn as much as she could about ME. She kept telling me she was learning so much about ME because of me. <laughs> no pun intended or maybe pun intended. Um, and she was, uh, just wanted to help and we tried different drugs and she was open to them. Whereas I had to, it was like pulling teeth with my former family doctor. It, it took forever to get him to even try amitriptyline because for one reason or another, there was always a reason. Oh, well, amitriptyline can make you drowsy and, uh, give you dry mouth. I, I already have dry mouth and I have severe insomnia. How is drowsiness going to harm me? I already drink six liters of water. It just, it was just nonstop battle. And finally the battling was over and I got better. I got better because I was on medication that I had been pleading to be on. She let me have Ativan again and she let me have Zoplicon, which is a similar medication that I was never told about. My family doctor never told me about it. 
Um, and uh, I was allowed to have it in hospital. And as I said in the past recording, it's probably why I survived because otherwise there's no way I could have slept in that noisy hospital. There's no way. And a whole month of not sleeping, I don't think I would have survived that because I'd, I'd already gone down and lost all the weight that I'd put back on because I'd gotten very, very sick over Christmas and my doctor wouldn't prescribe effective nausea medication. The main thing that was effective for me was Ativan and he wouldn't prescribe it. And Ativan is used off-label for nausea regularly. So um, in any case, she let me have those medications. My nausea got better. I put on weight. I was able to actually start eating solid foods. I was able to take my mask off. This all happened over the course of months and very, very slowly, but I was able to have the curtains open. I was able to start listening to my husband talk to me, really talk to me. He'd been writing a journal regularly, saying all the things he wished he could say to me. One of my most cherished objects, one of the most romantic and beautiful things he's ever done for me, and he's done countless, because he just missed talking to me. So he, he would write all the things he wanted to say how he wanted me to see the snow, how he wanted to hug me and dance in the living room and how he missed me. And we've been through so much together, but I'm so proud of what we've overcome together and how much we're still going through. But I'm, I'm so grateful to him. He's just the light of my life. And um, I got to start having my cat in my room again. It was too painful before and he would try to climb all over me and my, my body was in so much pain I couldn't handle it. And the more I slept, the less severe my neuropathic pain was. Everything would improve and I started being able to watch television. One day I asked for my iPad and I looked at it and it didn't fry my brain like I thought it would. It didn't make my eyes explode like it felt it would. Um, and it had at other times I had tried to look at a phone and the pain was blinding light for just hours and a blinding headache for more than a migraine for, for days. So um, I was finally sleeping and my body was doing what my body always did in the past. It was recuperating because that's what sleep gives for me. It, it, it helps me recuperate. It does for almost every ME patient that I know of. And um, that's how I would recover from every crash. So, and she understood that. I explained it to her and she got it. I didn't have to explain it a million times. And as you all know by now, I'm a talker and I repeat myself because I feel like I've constantly had to explain myself and give different examples and try and try and try again to explain myself. And I know I don't have to, to, to you, all of you who are who are missing out on so much, who are missing from the lives that you deserve to be living. And I would do anything to have superpowers and give you back the lives you deserve. But I'm explaining it just because we hope we attract a, a large audience of people who know nothing about this illness, of, of doctors who may be open to having their minds open and, and scientists and other people within the medical community who would like to learn. And um, I hope this, this podcast reaches far and wide and I, I hope many people will join to tell their story because each one of your stories are, are priceless and as painful as they are to, to talk about, they're needed and you're needed and you're, you're so appreciated and important. And, and thank you if you're listening. Um, just I thank you with all my heart. So it was a wonderful year and a half. I mean, it was one of the hardest and most horrible in other ways still because I was still trapped in my bed. I was still in an unbelievable amount of pain. We couldn't find any pain medication that helped. And we tried low-dose naltroxone. We tried all kinds of things, but nothing really did work. But um, magnesium and different um, different combinations of things, but it um, really the Ativan and the Zopacon were the only thing that helped. Um, another drug called Ondansetron helped my nausea, so those two things helped. Ativan and Zopacon helped me sleep. 
ondansetron and Ativan helped my nausea. And then we did try propranolol, but long-term realized it, it really wasn't doing anything. Um, just like the naltroxone, unfortunately, the LDN. And um, it, it's different for different people. Some people have been able to really recover from some of the drugs I've mentioned. So it's really, unfortunately, each patient is a little bit different, which makes it extra hard to, to treat. But um, I just finally could have normal things again. I, I could have, um, you know, some pieces of cake and the, the Christmas right before I was hospitalized on New Year's Day, I could only eat the icing off of a Yule log. That was my Christmas. I couldn't take my mask off and I was fed a bit of chocolate icing and that, that was my Christmas. But at least I, I was loved. At least I had a loving husband spoon feeding me icing, which which is not such a bad thing. But it was it was pretty tough circumstances. But I could actually have a piece of Yule log if I wanted to, and um, my swallowing problems were much better. They were still there. Everything was still there, but it was so much better. There would still be episodes of nausea, but it was so much better, and um, and IBS. But everything was so much better the more I slept, and I was slowly getting more and more of myself back um, and I was able to raise my bed to 30 degrees and she was seeing these improvements and she trusted me she believed me and she cared and she was reading as much as she could and she she would spend probably two more than two hours every time she would come see me she would clear her afternoon as busy as she was as clearly overworked as she was and she was just so she was so good to me and I, I wish that she could have been my permanent doctor but um, she gave me a lot and she healed a lot and she gave me respite from a doctor that I was really, had come to be really terrified of. And, um, so, uh, things were a lot better. They were still painful, but I had my little magic who Garrett would carry in. My husband would carry in every day to see me. I could manage that. He can walk. He's perfectly capable of walking. He's very fit and athletic, but he likes to be carried like a prince and put on me. And he's so gentle, so, so gentle. He would crawl onto my chest and nuzzle his face into my neck or sleep um, between my knees or down at my feet and always wanted to be near me and every day would cry at my door while I was sleeping if he accidentally got into the hallway because we had a partition to keep him in the living room otherwise he'd cry outside at our door all night long and my husband and I had to sleep in separate bedrooms um, for the first time in you know in 14 years apart from two sleep studies I'd done which was so painful but he was right next door but it did feel like our little family was ripped apart we used to all sleep together my cat in his little cat bed and magic in his little cat bed and his magic bed and Garrett and I and and this disease just brought everything crashing down but slowly it felt like it was coming back together a little bit and it was just such a wonderful relief and I was just so eternally grateful to finally have a doctor that listened to me so um but unfortunately after a year and a half she had to leave I did have a palliative care doctor at the time um as well but she never prescribed anything, and she, while she was kind, she didn't seem very engaged. Um, she was kind to me, and she listened and treated me with respect, but she never prescribed a single pain medication. And um, my family doctor had told, who was on sabbatical, had told my replacement doctor that um, opioids were off the table and completely out of the question, even though I was in in level 10 pain almost all the time, you know. but. 
that's how he was, you know. He was very against any drug that he felt was um, a serious medication. So I just had to live with my pain, unfortunately. So, and then that year and a half went by a little too quickly and my old doctor came back and it was pretty heartbreaking. It was very, very difficult to have him come back. And one of the first things he did was take me off of the Zoplicone or Zoplicone, Zoplicon, Zoplicone, however it's pronounced, the Z pill as they called it in hospital because it gives you the Z's, it makes you sleep, which is much easier to pronounce. So maybe I'll call it that from now on. But he took me off of it cold turkey, even though alternating it really helped. And, and there was proof, journals of proof, medical notes of proof, my file full of proof that this doctor had recorded. And then he tried to cut my Ativan dose in half and at one point, my husband called my Ativan prescription in a couple of days early because he had some things to deal with and he was just trying to cross things off a list. My doctor got very, very upset, called my husband and said, your wife is clearly addicted to Ativan. I want her off of it completely. And um, until then, I'm going to start, start counting all of her pills. So it just, it just never ended with him. It just, you know, you got a little bit of a break and there he was right back again, just trying to put me back in a state of suffering and I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back to my mask and to my, to drinking meals through a straw and wearing earplugs and not having any daylight and just being buried alive. I, I couldn't go back and the pain that was so bad that it at times felt like someone was trying to cut my leg off or slice through my leg, slice through my body or dropping a piano on my chest or it felt like a vice crushing my brain, a stone fist crushing my skull. The pain that I experienced was pain that I didn't know you would experience unless you were moments from death. I never even knew pain like that was possible. And I couldn't deteriorate to that level. I couldn't. I was just desperate. So I called my palliative doctor who wasn't that engaged. And I said, you know, this is such a problem. And I, I improved. Here's all the anic uh, Here's all the proof that I improved. I have the curtains open. You've seen the improvement. Um, my, my family doctor who's returned as difficult as he's being, he's seen the improvement. The first thing he said is, oh my goodness, you're so improved. You can have the curtains open. We've all seen it. And it was because I could sleep. It, it's essential for me to have this medication. Please, please talk to him. So she agreed to talk to him. Thankfully, he relented and he let me keep my Ativan, but he wouldn't let me have the Zoplicone. So um, I deteriorated a little bit, but at least not to the point of, you know, being buried alive and drinking my meals through a straw, but it was just so painful to have him back. And, um, then there was another bright spot, up and downs, up and downs, up and downs. So there was my psychiatrist, the one who had written a note, um, stating that I was not psychiatrically ill to put on my file, who I had seen for a year. It was about five years previous to the, to me being bedbound that I'd seen him for a year and he just counseled me on on just coping mechanisms of living with an illness that wasn't being treated and he told me all kinds of stories about how how difficult of a time he had with, with doctors who tried to use mental illness as a scapegoat and use it as a backup label when they didn't have answers and how much they disrespected the mental illness community and how much harm they did and how much he'd, he'd have to try to protect patients who were clearly 
not mentally ill but were physically ill and who were being sent to psychiatrists because no one would help them. And he was a wonderful, wonderful, is a wonderful man and unfortunately had retired so I couldn't see him anymore. But he had that lovely letter that was on my file for everyone to read or to ignore, you know, as many did because it didn't suit their narrative. But um, as luck would have it, in a horrible sense, because of the pandemic, he came out of retirement to help. And that's how decent of a man he is. You know, he could just be enjoying his retirement. He certainly worked hard enough for it. Been a doc, uh, psychiatrist for over 40 years and had a 4.7 rating on uh, WebMD, which is a Canadian rating system. It, it might be in other countries, but I, I know it in, in Canada, um, which is an extremely high rating. People testimony after testimony saying their testimonial saying that he's um saved their life and an incredible doctor and he's an incredible doctor so um he came out of retirement i found out unfortunately uh, quite a few months after he'd come out of retirement um unfortunately i wasn't told until it many months had passed but i was finally told and, and he agreed right away to take me back on I told him everything that had happened because he knew about my family doctor because that was one of the things we talked about was how badly I was being treated by my family doctor. And he said, he said, um, I'm going to take over your sleep medication um, from now on. And the best way to handle it is just to tell your doctor directly. A new doctor is joining our team, my previous psychiatrist, and he'll be taking on the sleep medication as he has more experience with it. So, <laughs> which I had to say very, very gently because my doctor's ego could not really handle that. But my doctor, I thought, might be even relieved, and he was almost sounded relieved that he wouldn't have to deal with it, because I think he really just didn't want to have a patient that was highly addicted to Ativan. He didn't want to deal with that. So that was more pressing and important to him than letting me, than treating a patient who could go two weeks or more without sleep, you know, if, if not, if not given the proper prescription. So he said, he said, okay, you know, fine. There's nothing he could say about it. He didn't have a choice, but that's what was going to happen. So I was given a higher dose of Ativan because my do my psychiatrist believed it wasn't adequate. And I started improving even more. And my husband was able to carry me out onto our balcony. Um, for the first time in two and a half years, I saw the sky, the sky that I used to photograph all the time, the sky that I would watch the sunsets and sunrises because my sleep was always all over the place. And the sunsets and sunrises that so many people would drive or walk by, they were miraculous to me because they were a gift. And I spent so many months of my life curled up in bed, not seeing the sky. And then I'd spent two and a half years not seeing it. I only saw it once when I briefly opened my eyes, um, pushed my mask off for a second when I was being wheeled from um, on my stretcher into the ambulance. I just needed to see it. It was just a blue sky, but I needed to see it. So. My husband carried me out. I took some Ativan and it really helped the nausea because when you have bad nausea, being carried and moved is really, really hard. And I lay out on my balcony and I wore a um, loose, comfortable summer dress because any fitted clothing was painful because I was in so much pain. At my worst, I couldn't even have my hair brushed because it was so much pain and I would get electric shock like pain, like someone was electrocuting your scalp. That's what my pain often felt like, felt like being electrocuted. Um, but I got to lay out there and, and look at the sky and it, it was, it was beautiful, but it was also heartbreaking. And I faced the bench that my grandmother sat on years ago when she came to visit us and I could feel her there with me. And I watched the clouds and I cried because 
it was beautiful, but it wasn't quite the same. I couldn't get up and get myself a snack or go to the bathroom or walk over to my hammock and swing in my hammock, but at least I was out there and it was wonderful. It was the end of summer, it was August, and to know that my doctor had deprived me of that for so long when he would always say, you need to get outside, you need to get out of this bed, and yet wouldn't wouldn't allow me to have the medication that would, would help me do that. But so I got outside, uh, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times, maybe more, I can't remember quite, but I, I got outside quite a few times carrying me and bringing me um, nice food to eat and a, a little bag that had all the things that I needed, like wet wipes and Kleenex and, you know, because I couldn't get up. I had to, once I was there, I had to stay until I was ready to go back inside and I was just so happy. And then for my my 40th birthday, he decorated the balcony with all these um, items from Ikea, just colorful pillowcases and and um, tropical looking pillowcases and, and blankets and towels and lanterns and, uh, and umbrellas with tropical patterns. And he turned it into a little Hawaiian oasis because I missed Hawaii so much and I just wanted to be there so badly. So that was my 40th birthday present and I lay out there in my little Hawaiian oasis and with a Hawaiian dress and a, a Hawaiian uh, flower in my hair and and it was magical and wonderful and and magic. Our cat sat in the window and watched me because that's what he loves to do. I before I got too sick, I made him little beds all over the apartment because I knew he was so scared at first when he came here. He'd been abused too and been been neglected and so I knew he needed lots of little nooks to feel safe so I I made little window nooks with all kinds of blankets and pillows and I made little nooks under chairs that would so he could feel hidden and I made a little bed under the our bed which is where he would hide when there were fireworks but he loved sitting in the window that he could get right up to the screen because I made the pillow sort of bed go right up to the screen and sometimes the the breeze would go through his fur and I have pictures of him with the breeze blowing through his fur and he has the most serene little look on his face and I'm sure I was wearing a matching one and I would just lie out there looking at my little Hawaiian paradise with my lanterns that lit up at night listening to music I could finally listen to music again and watching my cat in the window so it was beautiful it was beautiful and it was incredibly painful at the same time because I saw people riding by on their bikes and I saw them driving and I saw them walking and I saw them running and I would give anything to do those things. And they were just regular parts of people's day, mundane things. They were driving to an errand that they didn't even want to do and I would give anything to be able to drive, to be able to run, to be able to walk, to be able to be irritated that I had to go on an early morning run or a evening run. I was never out there in the early morning. I'd I'm no morning person, but, you know, I would give anything to. I was so grateful, but it didn't mean that it wasn't painful. It didn't mean that being trapped in my bed and occasionally being able to be carried out on my balcony wasn't excruciatingly painful, but it it was lovely, and I was so grateful. So um, we tried a few other medications with my psychiatrist to see if they would help me sleep. Um, they didn't, unfortunately. Some of them gave me... Um, one called Nazanin, which is a very old medication that is given to cancer and AIDS patients at the end of their uh, end stages of life, very, very sadly, um, which helps them with nausea because they can get very severe nausea um, and it helps them sleep. They just sleep all day. And I thought, oh my goodness, this could be the medication. Maybe this would let me recover. So I tried it and unfortunately it caused uncontrollable tongue twitching like just violent tongue twitching and I was lisping and if you we took video of it of my tongue 
looking like it was doing the wave. It was like twitching and dancing and just, we talked to my psychiatrist right away and he said, absolutely, you cannot be on that medication. It's quite a significant symptom and has a specific name that I can't remember and um, you have to be off of it. But when my family doctor found out, which we weren't hiding from him, it was all being done. I told him that this doctor was taking over any sleep medication. Um, he found out that my Ativan dose was higher, that we had tried Nazanin, which I'd asked him if we could try and he was very against. But, um, you know, I had a new doctor and an actual specialist for sleep who was much more specialized in sleep taking care of me. He was so angry that he threatened to not renew any of my medications that he was still providing to me, which was Ondansetron that also helped with my nausea. Sometimes it would get so bad that I would need both and Ondansetron and and Ativan. He wanted to stop renewing my propranolol, which I was trying again to see if it would help with my heart rate. We, we just couldn't quite figure out if it was helping me or not, but we were giving it another try and he refused to renew my anaphylactic med medication called cetirizine. So three main medications and probably some others that I'm not remembering, but he said he refused to renew them. They were all due for renewal until he spoke to um, the psychiatrist and that he wanted me off of Ativan completely and that he was very, very upset at the choices that we had made. So I found that to just be horrifying, to threaten to not renew essential medication, medication for my heart, for my nausea and for my anaphylaxis or anaphylaxis episodes. So, um, and when he said that until he talked to my doctor, that could be weeks and weeks and weeks because that's how long it took him to do things. So I would just be without that medication, which needed renewal, just cold turkey without it because he was angry that someone made a choice that he didn't agree with. And that's what specialists do. And doctors and specialists disagree all the time. They made jokes about it with me in hospital because I, um, the infectious disease specialist wanted my catheter removed because I had two bladder infections and the urologist wanted it in because he didn't think that my bladder could work properly on its own. And I asked of this very kind young med student, the one who was so kind to me, one, there were quite a few, but who I really got along with, could they maybe talk to each other and, and come to some agreement? And he said in the most serious voice, oh, oh, no, 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 Natalie, um, no, they don't do that. And they, they wouldn't be willing to listen to each other. And he said it so seriously, but it made me laugh so hard because it made me think that must happen all the time with these big egos that they won't listen to each other. And one specialist says this and the other specialist says that, and there's absolutely no middle ground. And then there's the patient in the middle ground, completely screwed. So, um, or completely in the in the thick of it, you know, so to pardon my language, but um, so uh, that's what happened with my family doctor. And that is the story of how I fired my family doctor, because I finally said what I should have said a very long time ago, enough is enough. I am done with your abuse. I'm done with you treating me this way. I've had enough. I didn't say any of that to his face. I don't want to sound braver than I am. It's just that I've had so many confrontations in my life and I just didn't want any more. So we wrote to the head of the clinic, very politely saying we can't continue on with this doctor. We put in writing that he must renew my medication because he was threatening not to. Once it was in writing, suddenly all my medication prescriptions appeared. The pharmacy called and everything had been renewed. How interesting. And we said, could we please be, could I please be switched to another doctor? And that doctor was in fact also Garrett's doctor, but Garrett did not want anything to do with him ever again. We, you know, for, for 
for years we didn't want anything to do with him, but we felt trapped. And at one point we'd even found a doctor and he refused to sign the documents to release my file to that doctor, which I don't believe is legal either. I don't believe that. And that's, that's, um, I don't believe you're allowed to do that, but he wouldn't sign the papers over. So, um, we didn't, uh, we never did get another doctor and we tried many, many times, but no one wanted a patient like me anyway. I'm not a very desirable patient, a little too complicated. And, um, maybe, maybe it says on my file, patient talks too much, <laughs> but I guess that's why a podcast is good for me, right? Cause it's the one thing I can do. I can't do much, but boy, I can talk. So, um, the head of the clinic called me. We had a nice discussion. He was much more empathetic. He said it must be a very hard decision to come to, and he's really sorry, but it's their their policy that they don't move patients around it. Otherwise, everyone would move around. I don't know how truthful that was. I'll, I'll try to take his word for it. And And I said, okay, well, then I guess there's nowhere else for me to go but to leave your clinic. And he said, well, you'll get two months, um, you know, where you can call the the crisis line or the hotline after hours line if you have any kind of medical emergency. But um, I guess we'll move on and we're sorry to lose you, but um, uh, we wish you the best. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? I think it's best for my health overall that I have nothing to do with your clinic because, um, and he asked me what my doctor had done and I, I was advised by many people to not, not tell anything because there was no point. It was his word against mine. And, um, of course the head of the clinic would take his, his colleague's side. So one day if I, if I'm ready, I will write to the college of physicians, but I wasn't about to divulge the most painful and personal parts of the last two and a half years of my life, I think it was about two and a half years, to to a doctor who would probably have a bias. That's one of his colleagues, that's someone he hired, you know, most likely hired or was at least uh, above, um, you know, he's being the head of the clinic. So I just decided I I can't trust you with this information and I'll I'll go to the College of Physicians if I want to launch a complaint. But, you know, I believe, I know what I I went through and I I believe there are people that would believe me and, and and would care, but I don't know where they are. And I, you know, the College of Physicians is a little bit like uh, the police investigating themselves. I'm not sure how much faith I have in that either. And again, there are wonderful police officers, there are wonderful doctors, but we need better oversight, you know, in in all of these arenas because um, it, it doesn't feel very promising to a patient to write to the College of Physicians. They're physicians. So, you know, they're gonna have a bias, even if they try not to, some of them at least. So, um, but that was it for me. He's fired and I was done. And it was one of the best feelings I've ever had. And I no longer had to ever see him and he's never welcome in my home again. I will never let him examine me again. I will never let him speak to me again. I will never interact with that doctor again as as much as it is within my control. And I'm finally free. And I don't have an OHIP family doctor. OHIP is the Ontario um, the provincial, um, medical system that provides you with a family doctor. I was told by their doctor finder service, um, that it would take 
over a year, up to a year and a half to find a family doctor, even though I was bedbound, even though I was this sick, even though I was a palliative patient, because I have a palliative nurse and a palliative, I had a palliative doctor. My palliative nurse um, is not able to write prescriptions. She's not a nurse practitioner. So all I had was my psychiatrist, which was wonderful. At least I had him, but it, it was pretty difficult. And it meant that I had to go to hospital on two occasions. I had to go on Christmas day and um, two days three days before that on the 22nd, once because when I called the after hours clinic, they were concerned by symptoms that I had that I might have lymphoma. Um, and then based on some blood work that another doctor had done, um, a specialist in Toronto called doc, uh, well, I'm not gonna mention names, um, but she was she's, sees ME patients and she runs an environmental medicine clinic. Um, that sees uh, women's health and, and sees a lot of ME patients and she had run some tests. So some other symptoms that I was having, it, it was a possibility that I might have lymphoma. And because everything was so up up in the air with, with uh, the pandemic and I could only be transferred by stretcher, they insisted or suggested strongly that I go to the emergency room. So I did. And then the second time was for a nicer reason, was that there was a new medication uh, that was out, that was being recommended to ME patients that was discovered by Stanford University that was helping Whitney Defoe. And there's an, an article written about the awakening of Whitney Defoe on his 37th birthday. 37 is when I became bedbound. It's a number that I keep hearing. So many patients that I meet are 37, but um, that was the, the most painful year of my life. I'm glad it was a lovely awakening for him. He, They stumbled onto a medication that I believe was being given to another patient for different reasons because it's being used off-label for ME patients. And it is a psychotropic drug, which is a little unfortunate because of the stigma we constantly have to deal with, but you, you have to take what you can get. And um, I believe in layman's terms, you can read all about it. It's called Abilify. And um, it's supposed to reduce pressure in the brain, but it, it's it's gotten people out of bed. It's it's had some almost miraculous um, stories attached to it of what it's done. It's allowed Whitney, who couldn't communicate, to communicate again. It's allowed some great improvement for him. And it was uh, given to me, thankfully, by my psychiatrist. He was 100% on board. He asked for the article about Whitney Defoe and said, absolutely, let's try it. That that was the kind of doctor that I finally had. And so we tried it and I noticed improvement right away, improvement in my just energy levels. And I started being able to sit up. So that doctor was wrong. That doctor whose words echoed in my mind that haunted me that I would hear right before I fell asleep, that would make me cry, that would just a knife in my heart. I sat up, I sat up in my own bed and I could do it more and more, not for long periods, but I could sit up. And little by little, I and I haven't shared this publicly yet because I wasn't ready to, um, and I'll never uh, want to withhold anything, but I can't share things until I've had a long amount of progress um, because things have been so up and down for me and I've shared progress and then I've gotten worse and it's too much for me emotionally, so I share what I'm, I'm able to, but I was able to, to slowly put one foot over the side of the bed, then another, and we got a walker. And at first I thought the walker was broken because I kept falling backwards. So we sent the walker back to Amazon, which I don't love supporting, but it's it's the way to get all of my medical supplies. And then I, I once again, it's the easiest way for us. And then, um, but then I wanted to try again. So we ordered back the walker and 
I um, kept trying every day and I had such contracted feet that were pointed downwards. There's contractions that you get when you're, when you're not moving enough, the, the, the bones and everything, muscles got, get all contracted. So I couldn't put my feet flat on the floor at all and I would just tip over. But little by little with practice, I could start sitting on the bed and putting my feet flat. And then eventually I started being able to stand at the walker so I could stand and I could take a few little steps. But that was about it. And that's that's the improvement I've reached so far. And I'm still at that improvement. And I can't do it every day, not even close. But that's pretty big for me. It means something. It definitely means that that um, Abilify, the combination of Abilify and Ativan are helping me. We decided to just streamline it and keep me on just Ativan since it is a little simpler and, and Zopalcon is very, very similar. Um, so I was fine with that. I was just not fine with the way that my doctor just came in and, and cut it off because he just always had the power to do that. And and he felt so much freedom in doing it. It was a discussion that my doctor and I, my psychiatrist and I had maybe out of and since it works a little better, let's just up your dose and keep you on that, just keeping it simple for you and your body and for the pharmacy. So um so there was that improvement and I, I had a wonderful, I have a wonderful psychiatrist who listens to me and is so protective of me and was ready to write to the College of Physicians about my family doctor. He was just absolutely disgusted and, you know, maybe someday I'll take his word, um, take him up on that. I don't know. I'm not emotionally ready and it's it was hard enough to just record all of this. So um, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm ready for that, but... Um, Someday I hope to be able to. Uh, Jen Brea wrote to her doctors, to a neurologist who diagnosed her with conversion disorder. It's a popular, fun diagnosis. They love to just hand out when they, when they see something neurological they can't explain. They can't diagnose themselves with being human and having limits and not knowing everything. So they diagnose the patient with having imagined an illness that ripped their lives apart and caused them excruciating pain and cause them to have trouble standing or walking or even leaving their bed, which is just so logical and so reasonable and just reeks of humility. And hopefully my sarcasm is coming across loud and clear. But anyway, um, so I, I have a psychiatrist who cares about me and um, I have a doctor in Toronto who is not going to be my long-term doctor, but is doing evaluations, three evaluations on my case, and then writing up very long, very thorough reports where she even wrote that she is interested in the help that Adivan gives to ME patients. And she wrote about um, how other doctors had referred to me as resilient, and she wrote about everything that I, everything that I was suffering with and how much I was suffering. We've had two appointments so far. They're very thorough. She asks a lot of questions. She does a lot of blood work um, and has a lot of suggestions about different supplements, but also about watching. Um, sometimes uh, my white blood cell count would be low and things like that. So she's very on top of things and she treats me with a lot of respect. And I have one more session with her. And if my case is deemed complicated enough, which she alluded to, it is pretty alluded that it is pretty complicated. I might stay on with the clinic and be seen by one of her other doctors just because it may not be possible to wrap up all the help that I need in three sessions. I only have one more left. They're all about two hours. And um, 
and she's um, in a city um, away from us. So I don't want to give my location. I'm just not so comfortable with the big wide internet, but um, she's not in the same city as me, this doctor, but she's, she's lovely and she's helping. So at least I have that and she can prescribe medication. So I do have help, but she can't be my family doctor and she cannot fill the role of a family doctor. So I still have no OHIP doctor. And then I have a doctor in California who is very expensive. Unfortunately, I understand that his clinic um, is not able to accept Medicare because they don't get their costs covered properly. So it's unfortunately about, um, it reaches almost $800 Canadian per hour to to um, talk to him. It's about 600 American. And then with every 15 minutes, there's a surcharge, but he is incredibly knowledgeable about ME, about complex illness, and um, he helps me as much as possible, but he's, you know, a country away and can't prescribe medication, but he can recommend over-the-counter medications that can help. He diagnosed me basically as much as he can from a distance with mast cell activation syndrome, which is an a, a condition that causes repeat anaphylaxis in patients. So they'll have things like hives and vomiting and um, increased uh, dizziness and heart rate, basically anything that would be like an allergic reaction kind of episode. And when I was younger, I started having constant hives. I started having so many problems with, um, I was about 15 years old, I was having hives all over my body, just nonstop. And I was so self-conscious about it because I was incredibly young and, and self-conscious as a 15-year-old. And I would carry around a little vial of concealer and um, try to cover up, uh, go to the bathroom and cover up these hives. I'd get them all over my face, all over my chest, sometimes on my arms, not not much anywhere else, but mainly on my uh, face and then chest and arms. And he said that was classic mast cell um, symptoms. And your mast cells are very important cells that basically sort of go haywire and cause a lot of inflammation. And I'm explaining this very, very loosely. I'm not a doctor, so I'm explaining it in very, very layman's terms, very, very much in layman's terms. So you can look it up. It's M-C-A-S if you're not familiar with it. Most, a lot of ME patients seem to have it. So, um, and I fit all the categories of it. So, um, if you have anaphylaxis episodes and episodes that are very sort of clear of sort of allergies and, and respond to Benadryl and things like that, then it's very possible that you have uh, mast cell activation syndrome. So one of the treatments is over-the-counter um, medications for, for allergies like Benadryl and um, Claritin and things like that. So he recommended that as well as um, um, a supplement called um, quercetin. Um, so he's, he's been as helpful as he possibly can be with every tool that he has. And he's been helping me go through my whole history and really basically understand everything that I've gone through. And that's where I learned that my ME probably didn't start at the age of, um, 15, that it probably dates back to infancy where I had countless infections and um, was overly vaccinated and had um, two head injuries, a head injury as a child, and then 
one later in life. So he really helped me piece together my whole history. And that's going to be the last part of my story for you is how my whole history comes together to basically came together to create the perfect storm and a sort of collision course, a sort of domino effect that really led to me being this sick and this bed bound and how I was really essentially failed over and over again because countless times I could have had um, had help and there were medications for my POTS, P-O-T-S, which I've discussed in other, uh, other episodes, um, where you become very lightheaded when standing, there is medication for that. And I could have been given medication for sleep and I could have been given medication for pain and I could have been given medication for mast cell activation syndrome. So he was really just shocked and very disturbed at, um, how I was treated. And his first report about me said that I had one of the most complex and upsetting cases he had ever come across. So that's what we're going to delve into next is my history, because I only really learned and understood my history um, until I became fully bedbound and only about two and a half years into being bedbound. And my family doctor was still my doctor at the time and absolutely refused to talk to the doctor in California. Even though this doctor was very open and said he would be so grateful to be able to talk to him, he'd like to share what he thinks about my case and my family doctor refused, absolutely refused. So it really tells you a lot about what I had to deal with with him and countless of you will have stories that are just as bad or infinitely worse about awful doctors you've dealt with. He was only one of many difficult doctors I dealt with. I just dealt with him for quite a while. And um, I'm just so glad to be rid of him. So I have a little team. I still am trying to find an OHIP doctor that's covered by the by the government since I do live in a country with universal health care. It is a, doesn't really sound like universal health care to me to have a bed bound palliative patient not be able to get a doctor for a year. That doesn't sound like universal health care to me. I don't find that particularly acceptable. And eventually I might have to go public, you know, and tell my story, but this is as public as I'm willing to go at this point. Um, because I do have the help of my psychiatrist who can prescribe a lot of medications. I do have the doctor in Toronto who, um, is the most knowledgeable doctor I found so far in Canada about, um, Emmy. And I do have my doctor in California. Um, I'm not giving names of doctors that are practicing just because I, I just want to respect I don't know, certain boundaries. I don't know if, if that's not necessary, but if you if it's important to you, you can write to the podcast um, and you can ask us to share information with you and we're very happy to share it. Uh, I just don't want to without their consent. You know, I, I want to treat people the way I want to be treated. Um, Dr. Byron Hyde, who I saw, who's no longer practicing, he said that I could talk openly about him anytime I wanted. So he was very uncaring about what people thought of him. <laughs> And he really didn't, he, he um, marched to the beat of his own drum and was quite a unique doctor and did things his way. And I, I love that about him. He was all about the patient, but he just, he wished he could help us more. But so basically I do have a bit of a team and they are trying to help me. And so the next episode will be detailing sort of how they're trying to help me um, and mainly how this doctor in California what he's diagnosed so far um, and what he thinks is going wrong and how complicated he thinks my history is and why he was so shocked about it. So there's quite a lot that I learned from him. It was actually extremely painful to have our 
appointments because I realized just how much had gone on in my life that really shouldn't have that where I really should have gotten help that I didn't and how many things were missed and um it was just a lot to dredge up but at least it's given me answers and that's what I would always wish for was to at least have some answers because being so so in the dark about this illness you're already you're already in the dark literally you're constantly having to have be in a dark room whether you're having a crash or whether you live that way permanently for many very severe cases like I did for a year and other people have lived that way for years and years but you know we're in the dark too about understanding this illness so anyone that can help us understand what's going on in our bodies that's huge for us so I'm eternally grateful to him I do have an appointment coming up with him I'm not able to see him very often or have our phone appointments I can't see him because I can't travel um not just because of the pandemic, I have to move by, by stretcher. So it'd be a fortune to to airlift me, and would just not be even reasonable or even a consideration. But I have phone appointments or video appointments with him, and I have another one coming up. So um, the next uh, the next episode will discuss my history and what I've learned from him so far. And um, I hope you'll tune in. And I thank you for listening to me. I thank you for joining us. And um, once again, I just hope you know how much you're cared about, how much the podcast is here for you, how much we believe in you and want to help in whatever way we can. And um, please feel free to reach out if you feel at all compelled to tell your story. And if you don't, that's completely your right to um, please uh, continue listening if it's helping you. And I hope that it is. I hope that you feel, I hope that you feel represented. I felt so, so underrepresented my whole life. I felt that I just didn't count and I never would see stories or movies or anything about, about people with my illness or even with illnesses in general. They always played side characters, characters that would die to teach the main character some valuable lesson. And we need more stories and books about people with illnesses because we're here and we're, we're fierce and strong and we're fighters. And those of us, uh, and those who have passed on, you know, they, they inspire us and we, we fight on in their memory and in their honor. So, you know, we need more of our stories out there. So I hope, um, I hope if you're considering it, I hope you'll really consider sharing your story. We would love to be, um, to help you get it out there and love to help you in any way that we can so that you can get it out there. And, um, we encourage you and believe in you and, your story matters, your voice matters, what you've been through matters, and you absolutely matter so, so much. And I'm going to say it every time you hear me talk, because you deserve to hear it repeatedly. You are loved and you matter. And we're here for you as much as we can be. Thank you. And I will continue on in the next podcast episode um, about all the things I learned about my complex and painful but interesting history that shed a lot of light and gave me some clarity. And um, I hope maybe it will lead to some answers for you. And if it doesn't, at least I hope it will um, be enlightening and um, be worth listening to. So sending so much love and gratitude. Thank you for everything. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being there. Thank you for fighting, for still being here and fighting because I know how hard that is. And I just applaud you for everything that you're fighting against. And I'm, I'm sending you gentle hugs if that's okay. If you don't like hugs, that's also okay. And I'm just sending you love and, 
and appreciation and admiration and um I'm cheering you on as you fight. I know it's I know it's just about one of the most painful things you could ever imagine going through and it is so deeply, deeply unfair. I get it and we get it here at the podcast and we care about you and we hope we're helping. So lots of love and until the next time, take care. <laughs>